This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Well, good morning, Trinity. It's good to be with you. We're going to um, do something different. Uh, if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, we're going to go right into the text. And so if you're willing and able, please uh, stand with me. And let's give our careful attention to the very best part of the whole sermon. This is 1 John uh, chapter 4, and we're picking up where we left off last week. In fact, we're going to review a few of those verses. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because... God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe The love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love we love because he first loved us if anyone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love god whom he has not seen and this commandment we have from him whoever loves god must also love his brother. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. So uh, a few of you probably noticed that I've had bags underneath my eyes, and it's because I've been traveling quite a bit. Uh, Most recently, I was in Nashville at a conference where I got to meet a lot of pastors, and uh, one of the pastors I met is a guy named Aaron Baker, and uh, Aaron told me the most interesting story. So he went out to dinner with his wife. About 20 minutes into their dinner, another couple uh, was seated next to them, and this couple was a little bit older, maybe, I don't know, maybe early 60s or something like that. It, it became clear that this couple was not married. It was one of those restaurants where they were seated like pretty close to them, and so Aaron and his wife, Allison, could tell that the couple was just getting to know one another because they kind of gave off that awkward, uh, just getting to know you vibe, you know? 
And after a few moments, um, this couple got their drinks, and with that, they dove right into politics. And this was a lot of fun for Aaron because he secretly enjoyed uh, listening in on their awkward conversation and, and watching, uh, making sure uh, that, that, what, what, that what they were saying they hoped would be perceived by the other person as being just the right mix of um, savvy, smart, and ironic disinterest. Y'all know the game, right? And uh, so they talked about politics, but very quickly, very soon, uh, after the drinks, they, they, they jumped right into the topic of religion. And within just a few minutes, the guy says, when the aliens come to take over the world, I am going to be so embarrassed that religion still exists. When the aliens come to take over the world, I'm going to be so embarrassed that religion still exists. And you know Aaron's not making that line up, right? But as the conversation went on, the man's point of reference was not religion in general, but Christianity in particular. And so this guy is, you know, attacking the Christian faith. And at this point, like Aaron, who's a pastor, his mind's kind of racing. And he, he starts having these sort of internal fantasies about leaning over and asking this guy. He doesn't, but this is what he thought. He thought, I thought about asking, hey, would you be embarrassed about the abolition of slavery? Would you be embarrassed about the end of the apartheid? Would you be embarrassed about public hospitals and orphanages? Would you be ashamed about civil rights and all the innumerable things that are hard to imagine without the involvement of Christians and their beliefs? But mostly, Aaron reports, he wondered about the aliens. <laughs> I mean, what did they look like, and, and where did they come from, and why? And how would they feel about coming all this way to find faithful Christians all over the world that are just happy to know that they're loved, know that they're forgiven, and just doing everything, everything they can to love God and love their neighbor? Because that's what they will find. And it's not because we're a perfect lot of people. We most certainly are not. It's because, in spite of our mess, loving God and loving one another is the single most defining attribute of what it means to be a Christian. Love is the ordering principle or the active ingredient of the Christian life. And if you've been paying careful attention over the sermon series, this is like the hundredth time that the Apostle John has repeated this. He's starting to sound like a broken record. Now, if you were to read the whole letter from beginning to end, you'd remember that there's this huge problem in John's churches. They've been afflicted with deep conflicts. People have left the church. And so John's writing to these people who are left behind. And what does he say? He says that our personal relationships must be characterized by love. Just in our passage this morning, y'all, just our text this morning, he repeats it at least three times. Look there in your Bible. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Verse 11, we also must love one another. Verse 21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's just our passage today. This is a big deal. Christians must order their common life around love. 
Now, many of you know that I grew up in a working class home. You know, we bought our clothes on layaway and we never had name brand stuff. And so when, when we ate pancakes, we always ate it with Aunt Jemima syrup. Now, some of our best friends in the whole world are from Canada, and they have gifted us real maple syrup. And I know that I should prefer real maple syrup. It's harvested in small batches. It's, it's carefully collected. But for some reason, I prefer high fructose corn syrup with artificial flavors. So we have maple syrup in our pantry, but it's like never used. Then one day, my daughter makes some pancakes. Nobody replenished the fake stuff. And all we had was real maple syrup. And I thought to myself, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do this. I mean, what good is eating pancakes without the one thing that really matters? Guess what? John is saying something similar this morning. John says, there's one thing that really matters, and if it's missing, then this whole thing's a wash. Anyone who does not love does not know God. John, like this old man, speaks very matter-of-factly. If love is missing, the one thing that really matters, then just call the whole thing off. Listen, church, we need to pay attention to these ancient words. The world needs us to take this really seriously. Because the world is hungry for real relationships of love. This can be our greatest apologetic to a world seeking meaningful and authentic and safe relationships of love. So John's going to walk us through this matter of love this morning so that it presses into our life. And so he's going to do it in three ways. First, he's going to show us the origin of love. Then he's going to show us the expression of love. And then the perfection of love. So origin, expression, and then perfection of love. So let's begin with the origin of love. In our culture, we use this word love in a whole host of ways. Love is everywhere, you guys. We say things like, I love God. I love baseball, even though it hurts me sometimes. I love pretzels. I love artisanal root beer. I love puzzles. So most of the ways in which we express love, we are really expressing deficits or poverty in our soul. In in other words, I love something when it does something for me. You know, romantic love is often like this. I love you because you make me feel good. I love hot dogs because it satisfies my cravings. When our culture speaks about love, we're often speaking about this deep inner poverty that we need to be satisfied. See, in our world, everyone's talking about love, but we're talking about very different things. So C.S. Lewis, you guys know I always quote this guy, but in his book, Four Loves, he distinguishes between need love and gift love. And so he writes, he says, Need love cries to God from our poverty. Gift love longs to serve, even suffer for God. Need love says of a woman, I cannot live without her. Gift gift love longs to give her happiness, comfort, protection. Now listen, 
In both cases, a person is experiencing a deep passion towards the person or towards the object. But with need love, the source of that passion is based on what the person perceives the other person or the object can give him or her, right? In other words, the deep passion comes from a place of deficit, a place of poverty. But with gift love, we're talking about something categorically different. Gift love is a passion that is overflowing from abundance. In this case, because the person is so full of love, he or she is not afraid to sacrifice and give up something for the other person. This person with gift love is not afraid of sacrificing because he or she is not worried of ever running out of what's inside of them. Now, this is really important to kind of make this distinction in your minds. Because if you don't, you're going to turn the Apostle John's words into these dumb, empty slogans that we see on every superficial billboard, all right, or commercial. See, John bases his command to love on the origins of love itself. Look there in verse 7. He says, he begins, beloved, right? Now, just remember, guys, beloved means a person who is loved first, right? God makes a deposit in the person first. Now they're loved. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is Look at there, from God. And then in verse 8, he makes this even more explicit. If anyone who does not love, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. So he's the source. He's the, the, the fountainhead, right? To say that we ought to love one another, while true, it says nothing new. John is doing something deeper. He's constructing a motive and a power that enables love. Love is not something we generate in ourselves simply because we think it makes us feel good. Love finds its origin not in our poverty, but in God's abundance. God is love. That's where it comes from. And so John, the Apostle John, envisions Christian believers who are so completely full inwardly that they sacrifice for other people And that that's a natural byproduct of their spiritual maturity. Now think about this, guys, with me for a moment. If the origin of love is in God himself, if God fills us with this abundance of love, then can we fall out of love? I mean, if we fall out of love, what kind of love were we talking about in the first place? If you fall out of love, then weren't you operating out of poverty? And aren't you just looking for the next thing to be passionate about, to fill you, something that's useful to you? I'm not here just referencing romantic love, if that's what you're hearing. You know what's, you know that really annoying person at church? We call them EGRs, extra grace required, like, like Jeff Heiser. Ah, oh, see, I can't, he's not even here to, dang it. Uh, but that guy, you know him. We got to love him too. Your love can never run dry, even for that guy. He, why? God is love. He's the source. And love comes in abundance. That's why John says, look there in verse 20. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. In other words, it's an impossibility. To love God means that God's endless and abundant love is coursing through you 
And that in of itself makes it impossible to hate your brother. It's not that you shouldn't hate your brother. It's that you can't hate your brother. Loving God and hating your brother is like saying you love being an accountant, but you hate working with numbers. It's like, what, what are you talking about? Right? Those two statements make no sense. Numbers are the basis of accounting. The one is impossible without the other. It's a logical contradiction. Y'all, this is serious, though. This is serious. John wants you to read this, hear this, and take a deep look inside. Because he's not talking about your personality profile. He's not talking about your temperament. John tells us that the origin of our love is God. God is love. Therefore, our love for others must be absolutely abundant, and it defines the actual character of all those who identify as followers of Christ. It's a big deal. Now, we got to pivot at this moment and explore the character and then the expression of true love. So we talked about its origins, but we need to explore more specifically what love is like. A few years ago in the New York Times, there was an op-ed piece called, What's Love? Don't Ask the Answer Couple by Ann Hood. You can look this up. So 30 years ago, Ann Hood and her husband wrote a column in Glamour magazine, and people would send their letters to the magazine, this is before email, asking for advice about love. And Ann and her husband would provide advice. They were the answer couple. But since then, Anne and her husband have divorced, and she writes this article in the New York Times reflecting on this kind of new experience of love. And in this article, she says, there is freedom and even joy in not having the answers. I wonder if I could write to an answer couple today, if I would ask them what love is. I wonder what they would say, but I know they wouldn't really know. No one does. In other words, Anne Hood thought she knew what love is, but now, after failed relationships, she believes that no one knows what love is. Now, this is a really interesting thing to say, considering that our culture believes, in the words of the Beatles, our cultural priests, all we need is love. All we need is love. And yet this woman, Anne Hood, is saying, no one knows what love is. Apostle John was sure also that the notion of biblical love was mysterious to his people, to that original audience as well. In fact, the, the theologian J.I. Packer, he says, when the New Testament writers thought about divine love, they had to invent a new word, agape. See, the Greek and the Roman gods had stories about love, but it was need love. Their love was tied to their need or even to their lusts. And so John had to describe God in ways that completely separates him from those sort of pagan versions of love. But instead of giving us a definition, John gives us a picture of love. And so the first thing we need to see in John's image of love is that it's self-giving. That's the first thing. Look there in verse 9. John says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his son. And then in verse 10 he repeats, God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then in verse 14, he repeats, 
The Father ha has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So over and over again, John says, God is love, and love sacrificed himself. He gave away the most important thing in the whole universe. Love is self-giving. This is so significant because our modern ideas of love do not cost us anything. In fact, modern love is about getting something. And when you don't get that thing, you leave and you relabel the experience, calling it falling out of love. Or, if you're more sophisticated, conscious decoupling. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Modern ideas of love are about leaving people alone. But here, love is about self-sacrificing. You don't leave people alone. You move towards them. Right? Now, love isn't just self-sacrificing. There's more to this picture. It's also, it's not about attraction. It's deeper than attraction. Look there, verse 10. John says, in this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And then, of course, this idea is repeated in verse 19. We love because he loved us first. In other words, God was not attracted to us because we were inherently lovable. We're not attractive. God loved us from something that resides in himself, in his own heart. And that is why it is unbreakable. That's why we can't mess this thing up. That's why God doesn't fall out of love with us. Because it's not tied to attraction. And if our love for one another is tied to God's love in us, then it has to mean that we move towards meaningful relationships of love even when it gets hard. And that's why I'm actually so sad that the legacy of evangelical, evangelicalism means being a Christian means going to church on Sunday. It doesn't even mean that for some people. But that's all it means at best. Because John would say, no way. Relationships of gospel and sacrificial love is what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means. Can you say that that's what is true of you? Love, self-giving, and it's not based on attraction. There's one more thing in John's picture worth noting. Now listen to this. Love is meaningfully angry. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Let me explain. Modern people often think that love means never being mad about anything. And when our society calls us to love, what they're really saying is that we shouldn't have any opinions about other people's choices. Leave people alone, right? That's, that's, what, that's, what, we, that's what we mean when we say love. But if that's your definition of love, you'll never appreciate deep intimacy. To understand this deep divine love in you, you must understand the ferocity of God's wrath against you. In the words of one pastor, forgive and forget is not love. When John says in verse 10 that God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, he's speaking, put on your theology caps here, he's speaking of God's wrath. See, the pagans, they saw their gods as angry, and people constantly had to make sacrifices to their gods to assuage the, uh, the anger of their gods, right? 
So, God, so, so John picks up that sort of imagery and he says, Oh, God is indeed angry. As a righteous judge, God will not allow violence and lawbreakers to bring chaos to this world that he loves. But the ferocity of God's righteous wrath is put on Jesus, and Jesus experiences pure hell. God's anger is realized and satisfied when Jesus dies. That's what propitiation means. So love and anger go together. See, when you see someone that you love hurting themselves, it should make you angry, right? Of course, I'm not talking about this sort of destructive and judgmental anger, but biblical love is sophisticated and layered. If you are indifferent, then you don't really love. If you're not angry or if you don't want to get involved, it's because you love yourself, I mean, you have love. It's just that you love yourself and you don't want to be bothered. True love is very different than what our culture says it is. Just like in John's culture, there were these competing usages of this concept of love, right? So John doesn't just give us a definition. He gives us a picture of how true love is expressed. Love is self-giving. Love is not an attraction, and love without holy anger is counterfeit selfish love. All right, let's recap here. Stick with me here. We looked at the origins of love, and we looked at the expression of true love. Now we got to figure out how to do this thing. We call this perfecting it. Dallas Willard, a philosopher, he says, It's not an easy thing, maybe the work of a lifetime, to live as if we are loved, to quiet the voices of self-condemnation, to live outside the cosmos of our own desires, to extend the grace that we have been shown, to act on a vision of humanity that we are all loved by God. We need to act on this vision of love, but how? How do we make love the organizing principle of our common life? Because according to Jesus, love is the one thing people will see and therefore know that we're his followers. It's not our gifts. It's not our competencies. It's not our creativity. It's not our programs. Or it's not our music. It's not our preaching. It's if we love one another. Y'all, this is unsettling to me. It's unsettling because I know people who get along okay, according to the world standard, without loving. But that's not really what gnaws at my soul. What is so disquieting is that I have walked long stretches of my life without love. And what I've learned is that I'm the one who's missing out. Some of you might be familiar with uh, the name Sebastian Younger. He's a journalist, a war journalist who wrote the book called War. And the book considers how war teaches soldiers about love. 
His, his, his book contains tons of interviews with soldiers who were on the front lines of some of the worst battles in Afghanistan. And as a result, the soldiers struggled to reintegrate back into ordinary civilian life. And, and of course, the PTSD was awful, but that was not the main obstacle. It's that these men could never find in civilian life what they found with their brothers in war. That brotherhood, that love was unmatched. In Afghanistan, there was this profound commitment to one another. They put the safety and the needs of others ahead of themselves. Sacrificial love. And once they tasted that, they longed to have it again. And it was their love that led them to do incredibly courageous things. Pastor in New York, David Bisgrove, he puts it like this. He says, courage has always defied rational analysis. Throwing yourself on a grenade seems irrational. But you look more closely, and courage is largely indistinguishable from love. Soldiers don't love war so much as they love their brothers, who they sacrifice for in war. There is so much there that has helped me to understand what's going on in this passage. We were made to love. When our lives are not fulfilling that design, we become homeless. We lose our humanity. We feel aimless. But when we love, the divine life comes into us, right? John says in verse 12, he says... If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The action of love is the means of remaining deeply in God's love, right? When God's love is absent, we feel lost like soldiers who have come, come home to, to a world that they don't recognize anymore, right? But when we love, God's love is perfected. So John repeats that word perfected two more times in this passage. And so, you know, when John repeats words, you need to pay attention. Look there, verse 17, he says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. God's love is perfected not through our perception of it, not through our experience of it, but through our expression of it. And that's why the action of love gives us security. When a person feels secure, he or she will take risks. He or she will make sacrifices. And if we die loving, the worst thing that could possibly happen is now the best thing. Resting in the arms of perfect love. Do you see the relationship of one powering the other? Y'all see that argument John's mounting? If you have a garage full of Halloween candy, will you share it with your friends? Of course you would. Namely, you don't want diabetes, but of course you would share it. But if you've only even seen one piece of candy in the last five years, will you share your one piece of candy? As we love, we're filled with God's spirit, verse 13, and we are made secure. And secure people 
can give their lives away for others. Secure people. People who have been practicing love will automatically jump on a grenade for a friend. Why will a soldier jump on a grenade? Courage and love are largely indistinguishable. And this is the only way we can understand this next verse when John talks about perfecting our love. Look there, verse 18. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Why else would anyone jump on a grenade, right? Because here's what I want you to know, and I know this from experience. When those soldiers first arrived to Afghanistan, they were largely strangers to one another. They didn't love each other. But every day they woke up and they made a mutual agreement to take care of one another, no matter the cost. And as a result, their love was perfected. Their love made them so secure that it cast out fear. And they realized one day that they would courageously jump on a grenade for each other. Beloved. Beloved. Listen closely. We need to practice and make a habit of self-giving love. Without that one thing, the whole thing's a wash. That has to be the fragrance of Trinity Church. You've got to wake up each morning with that chief purpose so that it begins to feel less like work and more like a reflex. We don't get better at our jobs or we don't get better at our hobbies without practicing. It's the same way with love. Love looks like actions of self-sacrifice for others. And so seek out those opportunities to sacrifice. And when you find it, do it. And when you do it, you'll get better at it. And when that day comes and you're weary, I want you to remember this. That you are the object of God's white, hot, crazy, self-sacrificing love. You, you, You won't learn to love by reading a book about it or even singing a song about it. Listen, look, like how does, a, how does a baby or child learn to speak, right? And what happens if no one ever speaks to a child? That child's never spoken to. We learn to speak because people speak to us first in the same way. We learn to love because we were loved first. Jesus loved you. He died for you before you ever heartlessly mumbled the words, Lord, I love you. His love is preeminent. That's the testimony of the gospel. While people will sacrifice their days to come in here and worship a God that they have not seen with their own eyes. Because of that story, that narrative of love, which is unmatched anywhere in our society. In any religion, any worldview, this is the single most defining attribute of the gospel. God is love. There is no poverty or need in his love. His love is a gift love. 
God's love is sophisticated. It is layered. It's anything but indifferent. And God's love is perfected in us when we embody it. And when we embody it, we are made secure. We feel whole. We feel at home. Beloved, let us love one another. Amen.